Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In January 1986, a teenage boy leaves the warmth of his New York home to venture out in the middle of the night. Where he is going, who he is seeing, well, that isn't entirely clear. But somewhere along the way, this boy encounters the wrong person. A person who is willing to kill in cold blood. When the young boy's body is found outside of a local high school, rumors begin to swirl throughout town. Rumors of drug lords and vendettas. I'm your host, Nisa. Welcome to the Lost Crimes Library podcast. This is the story of the vicious murder of Sean Edwards. Sean Edwards was a popular kid. Aside from his family and friends who adored him, he also captured the hearts of his fellow classmates. He was a brilliant 14-year-old student, and he was a promising athlete, too. He played on his middle school's football team and was a valuable player, a player that seemed to have great aspirations in his future. Those who knew Sean described him as a sweet and lively teenager who was very welcoming to others. He was one of those people who was always willing and ready to help someone in need. Sean was also a friendly kid and didn't have any enemies. That's why his murder was so shocking to his family and the community. It was a cold night in Middletown, New York, on January 15, 1986, when Sean's mother, Cynthia, overheard her son saying something about his friend, Rob, getting into some trouble. Shortly after hearing this, Sean asked his mother if he could go out to meet his friend Rob. Cynthia told Sean that he did not have permission to leave the house that late on a school night. To be honest, all Cynthia could think about that night was going to sleep. She was suffering from walking pneumonia, and with five kids and a full-time job, she hadn't had much time to rest. The last thing she wanted to worry about that night was her son getting in trouble for a friend. Of course, Sean was disappointed that he couldn't meet his friend but he continued on with his night at home. He went to the living room to watch a scary movie while his mother went off to bed. Sean's sister, Kimberly, who was 21 years old at the time, stayed up with Sean to watch the movie. She's not exactly a fan of horror movies, 
so she kind of half-watches the movie from her bedroom. At some point, Kimberly and Sean both doze off. In the late hours of the night, the house was sleeping along with everyone else. That's until Cynthia woke up around midnight to check on Sean. Even though Sean had his own bedroom, the living room was kind of his space too, so she was surprised when she walked into the living room and Sean was nowhere to be found. Cynthia was worried, of course, but she didn't jump to the worst conclusion. Sure, Sean wasn't where she last saw him, but maybe he was still somewhere in the house. So Cynthia and the rest of her family combed through the house, but still there was no sign of Sean anywhere. The only conclusion they could come to was that maybe Sean disobeyed his mother and left to go see his friend. Cynthia wasted no time in the search for her son. She called the police because it just wasn't like her son to sneak out. Something must have happened. But the police told Cynthia to call back in 24 hours. They were sure that Sean would return home by the morning. But Cynthia wasn't going to just sit and wait for something bad to happen to her son. So she called on her ex-husband Melvin, Sean's father, to go looking for their son around town. He agreed to look despite his feelings that Sean's disappearance wasn't that serious. To Melvin, his son was just being a teenage boy, maybe testing his limits and breaking some rules. During the meantime, Cynthia went out to look for Sean herself. Unlike her ex-husband, she was terrified, and this fear only grew as she and her other children frantically searched the streets for Sean, but couldn't find him. Kimberly was told to stay home in case Sean returned and something strange happened that night. The phone rang, and Kimberly quickly picked up the call. But on the other end, she was met with silence and then a click. And this happened over and over again. Whoever was on the other end of the line never spoke, and Kimberly wasn't sure what to make of this. As night turned into morning, there was still no sign of Sean. Cynthia was truly panicked, but she knew she couldn't afford to miss work. Cynthia's sister picked her up for work at around 5.30 a.m. like usual. Cynthia told her kids to call her at work the moment Sean returned back home. However, that moment never came. On the morning of January 16, 1986, at around 6 a.m., a janitor from Middletown High School was about to walk into the school when he spotted a body right outside the building. At first, the janitor assumed this person was just a drunk individual who passed out. These things were kind of common for Middletown, so the janitor immediately phoned the police. When an officer arrived and waved his flashlight over the body, he quickly realized that this person was not some drunk guy who passed out. He was a teen and only about 5'1 and 110 pounds. The officer also noticed that this kid was not at all dressed appropriately for the weather. All he was wearing was sweatpants, a hoodie, a light windbreaker football jacket. But despite the frigid weather, this boy was still warm. The officer felt a faint pulse and immediately radioed for an ambulance, but the large amount of blood was worrisome, so the officer pulled up the boy's shirt to take a better look. Right away, it was clear that this boy had been stabbed many times. It was so bad that his stomach was actually opened up, and even though the boy was wearing a do-rag, the officer noticed a gash on the boy's head as well. And there was one more thing that the officer noticed. When he looked around the body, he found a pile of spit next to the boy. The officer knew it was fresh because it had not frozen from the low temperatures yet. It was becoming clear that 
whoever killed this boy did it not too long before police arrived, and whoever killed him definitely hated him for whatever reason. It was just so obvious from the crime scene and the condition of his body. The initial investigation into Sean's death was pretty slow, mostly because the police didn't have any leads to pursue right away. They did a search of the crime scene and it was quite messy. For instance, some pieces of glass along with a bloody rock turned up during the search. There was also blood on the wall behind Sean's body and on a trail that went alongside the school. There was even more blood on a railing and the handle of a knife found on the other side of that railing. In addition, there were chewed up gum and cigarette butts. As it was 1986, it wasn't all too uncommon for schools to allow kids to smoke on campus, so it wasn't like this cigarette stood out too much to police. We also have to remember that this crime took place before advancements in DNA testing. So testing the cigarettes and gum was out of question for the time being. Based on the messiness of the crime scene, investigators believed that the attack could have taken place in multiple spots on the property and that there could have been even more than one attacker. To police, it appeared that there was some fight between Sean and his attackers that drifted over some distance. There could have been a chase too. Police conducted searches of nearby storm drains, starting close to the school and working their way to surrounding neighborhoods. They were hoping to find a blade to go with that knife handle they found, or just any potential weapon that could have been used to kill Sean. Perhaps, whoever killed him thought to ditch it down a storm drain as they fled. Police also knocked on doors, asking if anyone heard or saw something strange. Now, while this was happening, school was still open for the day, and students began trickling onto campus while the victim was still lying there. This was because the medical examiner hadn't removed him yet. It's kind of shocking that this school wasn't shut down for investigative reasons, like preserving the crime scene but also because a horrific event just took place and it's kind of strange and cold to ask students to show up to a crime scene, but I'm just gonna chalk it up to different times. By 9 a.m., still unidentified, the victim is brought to the hospital morgue. They relied on the football jacket the boy was wearing to point them to a possible identity. The jacket was a 1984 blue and white Middletown Junior High School team jacket with the name Sean embroidered on it. Within a few hours, the body was identified as Sean Edwards, a junior high student who was in the eighth grade. A quick check of attendance records at Sean's school showed that he never showed up that morning. At the warehouse where Cynthia worked, her supervisor called her into his office to tell her that police needed to speak with her right away. She borrowed a friend's car and rushed home. Detectives met her at home and brought her all the way to the station to notify her that her youngest child was dead and the victim of a cold-blooded murder. An initial examination of his body at the scene showed that Sean was beaten with a blunt object and then stabbed to death multiple times. But the autopsy showed how gruesome this murder really was. Sean had essentially been disemboweled with at least 15 stab and slash wounds to his back and stomach. To make it worse, Sean could have possibly survived those wounds. However, it was the blow to his head that killed him. This blow to his head was described as beyond blunt force trauma. Sean's skull was in pieces. The medical examiner believed that the blow could have been inflicted with a baseball bat or a metal pipe or maybe steel-toed boots. It was estimated that Sean was dead for approximately an hour before he was discovered around 6.10 a.m. 
by the custodial worker. Everyone was truly dumbfounded by how and why Sean ended up dead. After all, he was just a kid. Who would want to hurt him, especially in such a passionate display of violence? Law enforcement couldn't find any clues that pointed toward a suspect. Like I said before, Sean was a likable kid, so he didn't really have any obvious enemies. But still, police had to conduct interviews with Sean's acquaintances and friends. However, during these interviews, they all insisted that they had no clue who Sean went to meet that night. They also told police that they had no idea when he left that night or how he left his home. Police believed that Sean left his house around 11 p.m. that night, but they weren't sure what Sean could have been doing between 11 p.m. and 6 p.m. After all, there weren't too many public places for him to go that late at night during the 1980s. Police checked a couple diners and convenience stores that would have been open, but they couldn't place Sean at any of them. Investigators were also confused as to how Sean got from his house to the school. He didn't ride his bike, which was still at home. Not to mention, he was also just 14 years old, so he didn't have a car, and neither did his friends. One thing they knew for certain was that Sean didn't walk. The walk is about two miles from his house to the high school, which would have been about 45 minutes on foot. It's also important to remember that it was really cold that night, and Sean wasn't dressed appropriately, so it's assumed he wouldn't choose to walk in that kind of weather ill-equipped for too long. Police knew that lots of teenagers took cabs around Middletown, and they knew Sean was one of those teens who did it too. So detectives obviously questioned drivers from two local companies, but they all said they didn't know anything about Sean taking a taxi that night. However, two cab drivers, who asked not to be identified, actually told some reporters that they heard Sean did take a cab that day to a shopping plaza near the high school that has a movie theater. But it was eventually revealed that it was actually one of Sean's brothers who called a cab to the shopping plaza. Apparently, he picked up some food and came right back to the house. During the investigation, the police also learned something interesting from an elderly neighbor who lived a few houses down from Sean. This woman had a son with a medical condition that required her to stay up throughout the night to care for him. So she told police that if a car pulled up in front of Sean's house that night, she definitely would have noticed. But according to her, no car ever pulled up. So detectives began to think that If Sean did catch a ride that night, he must have walked down the block to meet up with the driver. But who that driver could have been was still a mystery. With Sean having no romantic relationships, there was nothing to pursue on that end, so detectives had to move on to other areas of Sean's life. His family felt that if anyone knew what was happening in Sean's life, it would be his friend, Billy. So detectives spoke with him but Billy claimed that he had no clue what happened or where Sean could have been those seven hours between him leaving his house and being found dead at the high school. Billy even took a polygraph for the police, and he passed. Detectives were still so confused as to where Sean could have been during those early hours. What's really strange is that the police did their usual premise check of the high school between 4.10 and 4.20 a.m. It was part of their regular routine. But apparently, during this premise check, nothing unusual or suspicious was found. Not to mention, the idea of Sean just hanging out for hours outside the high school in the freezing cold with just a sweatshirt and a windbreaker to keep warm seems odd and unlikely, especially since Sean hated the cold. Since we are talking about the windbreaker, I should tell you that Sean's sister, Kimberly, 
said she remembered seeing Sean wearing that windbreaker while he was sitting on the couch watching the scary movie that night. So he still wore it even though his mother had already told him he wasn't allowed to leave the house, which I find interesting. Perhaps Sean still planned on leaving. We know that night, Sean received a phone call from a friend named Rob. However, Sean's mother doesn't remember her son ever being friends with someone named Rob, so that was another dead end for police. And the dead ends just kept coming. Police were unable to get what is known to investigators as a phone dump. For $500, detectives were hoping to get information about the incoming and outgoing calls that came from the house phone in the last 24 hours Sean was alive. But that phone dump, for whatever reason, never happened. It's possible that it didn't happen for financial reasons, that whoever was in charge didn't want to spend the money on Sean's case. So without access to phone records, detectives pivoted their focus to any possible enemies that Sean could have made, knowingly or unknowingly. But he just didn't have any. However, something piqued the interest of police during their interviews of Sean's other friends. They learned that Sean was acting strangely in the days leading up to his murder. Leading up to his murder, Sean supposedly kept hinting that his life was in danger. He was so scared that he allegedly carried a kitchen or hunting knife around with him. But none of his friends knew why he was so scared, or who was threatening him. The police were back at square one. No suspects, no leads. At one point in the investigation, police had to consider another rumor that was floating around. One that connected a Colombian drug dealer named Nelson to the crime. And there was another rumor out there that a man named Joey Salgado could have done the dirty work for this Nelson guy. This guy definitely had a reputation for being violent, and he also had a criminal record. Although there were rumors circulating that Sean was selling drugs, it's important for me to note that Sean's family insists he was never involved in selling drugs or using drugs. And they're just rumors because there was no evidence that Sean was ever involved in drugs. There was no drug paraphernalia found at the scene, his blood test showed no indication of drug use, and Sean's name never came across any officer's desk because he had never been in trouble with the law. In fact, Sean was all around a good kid. According to his sister Kimberly, in his whole life, he never disobeyed his mother, except for that night. And sadly, that night cost Sean his life. Although rumors kept cropping up throughout the years, the case still sat unsolved for quite some time. That's until the investigation took a turn that led detectives to a possible suspect who was very close to Sean. One rumor was that Melvin, Sean's father, was considered a suspect. This may be because after Cynthia asked Melvin to search for his son, Melvin allegedly stopped for coffee in a nearby cafe for a while before checking a few spots for his son. And I have to admit, this is kind of suspicious if it's true. If my son was missing, I wouldn't need coffee because my adrenaline would be surging. I would be out there searching for my son immediately, making it through each hour with pure adrenaline and desperation. Coffee would be the last thing on my mind, but that's just me. Some people do have unique and different responses to stress, so what may be suspicious to us may be normal for someone else. Although Melvin wasn't very involved in the day-to-day -day life of his son, Melvin's family has said that despite his faults as a parent, he was never violent and they don't believe he had anything to do with his son's death. Plus, Melvin was in his mid-40s, heavyset and a smoker, while Sean was young, athletic, and a fast runner. 
It would be hard to see how his father could keep up with him if he was running away like detectives believe was the case. And to others, Melvin didn't seem angry that night either. He seemed grief-stricken to many. However, the suspicion of Melvin became so strong that authorities issued Melvin a polygraph test. They also collected Melvin's boots for lab testing. When Melvin was questioned, he insisted that he had nothing to do with his son's murder. But apparently, like many others, they just weren't buying what Melvin was selling when he denied all knowledge of the crime against his son. Detectives kept an eye on Melvin, but also worked on other leads that came. A girl from Sean's class received a death threat that changed the course of the investigation yet again. Reportedly, this note warned the girl not to talk about the murder, and there was what looked like dried blood on this note too. The note was made with letters cut out from magazines. When police investigated the threat, it turned out that the person behind this anonymous note was actually the girl. Yeah, so that was obviously another blow to the investigation. At this point, detectives were grasping onto any leads that came because that's really all they could do. But many of these tips were proving to be nothing but time wasters. Another time waster was this kid from a neighboring school who was boasting about killing Sean. He claimed he was just having fun, but detectives still asked him to take a polygraph, which he passed. Along with having an alibi for that night, this kid was clear from suspicion of involvement as well, so detectives moved on to the next lead. In February, the police also received a tip. This tip claimed that a 1975 gray Chevrolet Camaro was seen idling in a park about a block and a half away from Sean's house on January 15, 1986, between the hours of 11 p.m. and midnight. And this was considered a big tip for police because that was around the time Sean snuck out. But there's more. Detectives were hopeful about this lead because this same car was also seen around 5 and 6 a.m. on January 16th, parked near the high school where Sean was found dead. And they knew this car was the same one spotted near Sean's house because of the special license plate that read, Mr. Fig. The police put out an APB, or All Points Bulletin, for this car. However, the police ended up walking everything back a couple days later. You see, 34-year-old John Fig Lucy figured out that the police were talking about his car. This man spoke to police and told them he had nothing to do with the murder. He even told them that he didn't buy the car until a couple of weeks after Sean was killed. Apparently, a guy named Chris used to own this Camaro, but he had recently sold it to a man who offered to pay for it in cash. However, Chris couldn't recall the buyer's name or when he sold it to him. John said he had received the car on January 28th and the license plates a couple of weeks after that. But this gets all even more confusing because detectives said that John told police he got the car on January 25th, not the 28th. When detectives interviewed the person who sold it to him, which was actually a woman, not a man, as initially believed, she corroborated the date of sale as being around that time period and said the car was not running when John Figlusi bought it. The guy hired by John to fix the car told police that the car was on jack stands without a transmission until at least January 20th, and that it was at his own house for a couple weeks before that. So after all of these confusing people, timelines, and dates, the police told a radio station that the Mr. Fig car actually didn't factor into Sean's case at all, but they were still looking for similar cars. However, detectives were apparently still focusing on this John guy, 
because he was involved in the drug scene. You see, police were still toying with the theory that Sean could have sold drugs, despite having no proof or being unable to find any person who bought drugs from Sean. There were rumors out there that maybe Sean saw something he wasn't supposed to see, but no one has ever said what he could have possibly seen. Meanwhile, Melvin was still a possible suspect, and detectives scheduled Melvin for a second polygraph test. On a Saturday morning in December 1986, detectives arrived at Melvin's to take him to New York City for the polygraph. However, when they arrived, his car was gone, and so was he. According to neighbors, Melvin never came home the night before. When detectives phoned his job, Melvin picked up and explained that he had to work a couple of extra hours. But this story just didn't add up to the police. He ended up taking the polygraph, but it turned out to be inconclusive, and this made him a bit suspicious. But at the end of the day, the detectives felt that whoever killed Sean was closer to his age, and that there were multiple perpetrators. Ultimately, Melvin's possible involvement reached a dead end. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Unfortunately, the first anniversary of Sean's murder came and went with no answers. And for a while, the case didn't garner any leads. Well, that's until the summer of 1987, when an unrelated home invasion put a previous suspect back into the fold. On January 27, 1987, late at night, Middletown police received a call requesting assistance at a condominium complex, about a five-minute walk from Sean's house. This call had nothing to do with Sean's unsolved murder, as this was a robbery case. 
However, one of the men involved in the robbery was Joey Salgado, the same person who police once suspected of being involved in Sean's murder. When 18-year-old Joey was arrested, he claimed he didn't rob anyone, but he knew who did. He claimed he saw two guys who he met through a man named Nelson on a bus heading toward Manhattan, and these two guys had all the loot from the robbery with them. If you remember, Nelson is that Colombian drug lord who is believed to be behind Sean's murder. No matter how hard he tried to convince police of this story, they weren't believing it. On July 7th, Joey and his friend were indicted on multiple counts of assault, robbery, and burglary. Joey was facing more than two decades in prison, so he tried to make a deal with the DA's office. He told them that he would give an eyewitness account of Sean's murder if he was given immunity from the robbery charges. Joey claimed he saw Nelson stab Sean in the stomach. Joey agreed to wear a wire and go to Nelson's apartment to try to get him to confess, but this plan didn't work. According to investigators, Nelson did not confess to anything. Things really went south when during the conversation, Joey began yelling out that Nelson was wielding some sort of weapon. Joey ended up running out of the apartment to get away. Ultimately, the DA refused to cut a deal with Joey, probably because he wasn't deemed a credible witness. But this didn't stop detectives from investigating Nelson, especially since they learned that he had occasionally wore steel-toed boots, which some investigators thought could have been used as a weapon in Sean's murder. In October of that year, detectives discovered that the boots were sitting in a repair shop for some time. Detectives believed that luck had finally struck in this case. However, when they looked at the boots in person, they weren't actually steel-toed boots. They were just average work boots. Nonetheless, they sent the boots for testing, which revealed basically nothing. Detectives even followed a rumor in which Joey told a cellmate the police would never find the steel-toed boots because Nelson left them at a relative's place in Georgia. Detectives actually went to Georgia to investigate further, but again, nothing panned out. I know all of these rumors are probably getting annoying and confusing at this point, but I want to mention another rumor that was put out there that suggested Nelson was involved in a homosexual drug ring. It was rumored that Nelson used drugs as a way to lure younger guys and maybe even teenage boys. According to detectives, Nelson was gay, but even if that was what Nelson was up to, there was no evidence that Sean was victimized by Nelson, so that route of investigation wasn't fruitful for detectives. Nevertheless, Somehow, Nelson was always inevitably brought up in Sean's homicide case. And throughout the investigation, many of the people considered as suspects in Sean's case end up going to prison for various crimes. As we know, Joy Salgado was sent to prison, but so was John Fig Lucy, known as Mr. Fig by police, Mr. Fig's wife, and Nelson. The 1980s ended with no progress in Sean's case. The case eventually became cold until the early 1990s, when a routine interview yielded a stunning confession. There was another interesting development in the case in October 1992, when a man named Timothy Fairweather confessed that he was involved in Sean's murder and was present when two of his friends, Joy Salgado and Eddie Devlin, killed Sean. At the time of Sean's murder, Timothy was 15, so it would make sense that he knew about the case or could have information about who was involved. According to Timothy, Eddie Devlin called him a few days before the murder saying he needed help beating someone up because the person had ripped off a cocaine deal. 
Apparently, Nelson is the dealer this guy was referring to. Joey also told police that in the early morning hours of January 16, 1986, Timothy met up with Eddie and himself behind Middletown High School. Timothy said he thought he was showing up for a gang fight, but was confused when only Sean showed up. Joey and Sean allegedly got into an argument, and Joey pushed Sean, prompting Sean to run away. Allegedly, Joey told Timothy to run along the other side of the school so he could cut Sean off. Timothy also told police that by the time he caught up with everyone, Eddie and Joey already had Sean on his knees, and that the two boys were kicking and punching Sean. Timothy said that he joined in, and then he held Sean down, while Joey pulled out a knife and quote-unquote gutted Sean. Middletown police brought Timothy to the high school to have him explain exactly what happened, and they realized that Timothy was right in the ballpark with the details. He seemed to only know stuff that someone who was actually there could have known. Plus, it had been some years since the murder. Maybe he didn't remember every detail to a T, but what he did know seemed to intrigue the police. Back at the police station, Timothy drew a map and a diagram of what he said happened that night. He signed a statement and wrote an apology note to Sean's parents, claiming that it was only supposed to be a fight, not a murder. To the police, Timothy Fairweather was confessing and it was pretty believable. Timothy was charged with second degree murder and sent to jail without bail. And for a while, there was this relief, especially for Cynthia, because her son's killer was caught. After years, it seemed that the waiting was over, that justice was finally done. But because Timothy was 15 years old when the crime was committed, he was set to be tried as a juvenile offender. So he was facing a maximum of nine years to life in prison versus the minimum of 25 years to life he would face if he was tried as an adult. However, there was a big problem with Timothy's confession. Timothy told his lawyer he lied in his confession to appease the police so he could leave. It was revealed that Timothy actually didn't provide the police with many factual details at all during his confession. If you remember, the police felt that Timothy was being truthful because he told him things only someone who was there could know. However, Timothy's attorney claimed that the police never said what those things were. It was all very vague. In addition, there were questions surrounding how information came up during questioning. For example, was Timothy prompted by police or did he volunteer the information? While this was happening, police were tracking down Timothy's alleged accomplices, Joey and Eddie. Police knew where Joey was, in prison, but he was refusing to talk to the police. The police tracked down Eddie, who was working as a mechanic at a Chevy dealership down in Florida. They wanted him to testify against Joey, but Eddie insisted that he could not testify as a witness in a crime he had nothing to do with. He told police he didn't even know Sean, and he didn't understand why Timothy told police he was involved in the murder. Supposedly, Timothy and Eddie never got along, and they once got into a fistfight as kids in 1985. But Eddie claimed that the last time he saw Timothy was at a bar in 1991, and that between 1985 and 1991, they never associated with each other. Eddie agreed to take a polygraph, and the person who conducted the polygraph said that he believed Eddie was being honest. Back in New York, Joey reluctantly agreed to also take a polygraph test, which he passed. So the only suspect police really had at this point was Timothy Fairweather. Despite the fact that Timothy's story had some major holes in it, Timothy is eventually indicted on a second-degree murder charge. However, Timothy Fairweather's attorney had something that would make it even harder to prove Timothy's culpability. 
His attorney provided evidence to police that showed Timothy wasn't in Middletown on the day of Sean's death. He was actually at a youth group home an hour away from Middletown. According to the records of this group home, Timothy was in their care from December 30, 1985 through January 31, 1986. But this wasn't enough to satisfy the courts. There was not enough proof that Timothy couldn't have left the group home at any point. An investigator for the DA's office was able to find detailed information that reflected Timothy was on the premises of the group home thanks to hourly checks that the group home did on a regular basis. The group home's records showed that all 43 kids were in their beds from the night of January 15, 1986, through the next morning. To bolster this, it was confirmed that the kids were checked on every hour from 1 to 9 a.m. During these early morning hours, it was noted that all kids were sleeping and the group home was quiet. However, this wasn't considered enough proof that Timothy wasn't involved. It was revealed that a staff member who was on duty at the time had been caught falling asleep on the job before. This was enough to keep investigators skeptical of Timothy, but the prosecutor's office would have to find proof that the group home's records were incorrect, and this task seemed almost impossible to the DA at the time. So before letting Timothy go, they asked him to take a polygraph test, just to make sure they weren't letting Sean's killer go so easily. Timothy Fairweather's attorney urged him to take a polygraph test, and guess what? He passed. This along with his alibi is what cleared his name. Timothy Fairweather walked out of the Orange County Jail a free man. The DA's office told the public that at this point in the investigation, there was no indication that Sean was murdered because he was involved with drugs in any way. This put detectives back at square one once again. For Cynthia, this was all emotional whiplash. At one point, she was sure that her son's killer had been caught, but now she had to go back to wondering who took her son away from her and waiting for justice. For years, the concept of healing and moving on was not in the cards for Cynthia because residents in Middletown were still spreading rumors about who could have killed Sean. Amongst the many rumors, there was a new lead that came up in October 1999 that piqued the interest of Middletown police. A man who had just retired from the Middletown State Hospital told the police that one of the psychiatric patients named William used to threaten to kill staff members, like how he killed Sean Edwards. Because of HIPAA laws, this man couldn't come forward when he was still working at the state hospital, but now he felt it was important that the authorities knew about William. Investigators subpoenaed the hospital records, but after combing through hundreds of pages, they found nothing that implicated the patient. In fact, William was staying at the hospital during the time of the murder. Occasionally, William was allowed to leave the hospital on a day pass, but he couldn't simply come and go as he pleased. And he definitely wouldn't have been allowed to wander around Middletown on his own around 5 or 6 a.m. Finally, there was nothing ever indicating that William went missing from the hospital either, so this lead wasn't pursued further. At this point, technology had advanced considerably since Sean was killed. In March of 2000, Middletown detectives met with the state police forensic team for a case review. But this meeting didn't go the way I think anyone had hoped or planned. Number one, it was unknown who handled or packaged the many pieces of evidence because detectives couldn't find records detailing the chain of custody. Number two, some of the evidence, including Sean's bloody clothing, was preserved in plastic. This is an issue because any evidence that is damp or wet needs to be air-dried completely, 
and then packaged in unused dry paper containers. If evidence is left in plastic for more than a couple of hours, the evidence can be altered or destroyed because fungus or mold can start to grow. Based on the condition of Sean's evidence, the state forensic lab told detectives that it wasn't clear if the lab would be able to pull any DNA results. However, the lab was able to pull something. The lab found a small sample of unidentified DNA found on a piece of evidence, but we don't have any way of knowing the details about that. And that's because of issue number three. We don't know the results of a lot of lab testing that was conducted because those records also cannot be located. Apparently, Middletown police were waiting on state police to get back to them about the results. Not to mention, they were also in the process of digitizing all the information in Sean's case file. These records have to be somewhere, but we just don't know where they went. During that case review in March 2000, the forensic pathologist shared information that supported a theory that many detectives already believed. The pathologist shared that considering Sean's athletic abilities, there was probably more than one perpetrator. This pathologist also suggested that police hire a bloodstain pattern expert to look over the crime scene photos, which they did. According to the bloodstain pattern expert, it looked like Sean was standing up when he was stabbed based on the cast-off bloodstains on the wall behind him. If you know, you know. But if you don't, cast-off bloodstains are droplets that are thrown or transmitted onto a surface from a moving source of blood, like a bleeding victim or a bloody weapon. In 2002, detectives made plans to submit Sean's football jacket for testing. They were hoping to get fingerprints. At this time, only two agencies conducted this test, the U.S. Secret Service and the Royal Canadian Mountain Police. This is mostly because at the time it was really difficult to pull fingerprints off of fabric. But in March of 2003, the U.S. Secret Service performed the test. Unfortunately, like many other instances in this case, the results of the test yielded nothing. Even though the DNA evidence didn't help much, that same year police received a tip. This tip pointed police back to a familiar suspect, Joey Salgado. A confidential source told police that the knife used in Sean's homicide was in a house that Joey's mom owned before she passed away. They said it was in an air duct in the basement. Now, if you remember, police found a knife handle at the scene which would suggest that maybe this was the murder weapon used to kill Sean. But police were never actually able to definitely prove that anything found at the crime scene was used to kill Sean. So to investigators, this lead could be a huge crack in the case that they have been waiting for for years. Officers were given permission by the new owners of the house to search the basement. When they opened up the air ducts, they found nothing but dust. Again, another lead met with another dead end. In 2007, detectives interviewed someone about Sean, who said the rumor that Sean stole drugs from Nelson was just a bad game of telephone. He told police that it was he himself who actually stole the drugs from Nelson's business partner. And although detectives were pretty confident at this point that the rumor was only just a rumor, this statement confirmed that Sean in no way was involved with drugs. But for the Edwards family, decades passed with rumor after rumor, but still no answers as to who killed Sean. Throughout the years, Cynthia kept notes in a notebook about all the rumors she heard regarding her son's murder. However, Cynthia claimed that eventually, someone had broken into her house and stole that notebook from her filing cabinet. And what makes this so suspicious is that the notebook was the only thing the person stole. 
Over time, Cynthia and Kimberly lost faith in the police. I mean, who could really blame them? According to them, they had bad encounters with many different investigators throughout the years. The police claim that they have spent countless hours investigating Sean's case. The case has been passed down from investigator to investigator throughout the years. To this day, the police claim that the investigation is still active. Detectives say the investigation has now taken two different directions. The first direction police are focusing on is still drug-related, whether Sean himself was involved with the drug game or if he knew others who were. The other direction is that Sean found out about something that he wasn't supposed to know and was killed for it. But detectives aren't sure what that something could have been, just that it could have been related to some illegal activity. And if you remember, people in Middletown were saying that they thought Sean knew about something he wasn't supposed to know and was killed for it. I mean, this theory would explain why Sean was believed to have been carrying around a knife for his protection leading up to his death. To Cynthia, she thinks that the attack was deliberate, that someone wanted her son to die that night because the attack was so brutal and so gruesome. With advancements in technology since 1986, especially advancements in genealogy, the police are hopeful that they will be able to learn more from the evidence they do have. In fact, detectives say there are plans in the works for more lab testing. They've also developed potential new suspects, suspects that weren't on their radar in the initial investigation. They say several of these suspects may be loosely connected to each other and even directly connected to each other. When it comes to the old suspects, Timothy and Eddie have been laying low, while John Figlusi, Joey Salgado, and Nelson have passed away. But there may be hope still with the newer suspects as they are all still alive, which means whoever killed him could still face justice. Anyone with information related to Sean's case is encouraged to talk with the Middletown Police at 845-343-3151. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Lost Crimes Library podcast. If you enjoy the show, please show your support by leaving a rating and review on Apple and Spotify. Also, follow us on social media. You can find us on Instagram and TikTok at the Lost Crimes Library pod. Before you go, make sure you hit the follow button because new episodes drop every Wednesday and you won't want to miss it. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues 
your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 